Welcome back to the Relatively Speaking Podcast. We are recording on Wednesday, June 28th. Yes, it is a special Wednesday edition, but sometimes you got to record when there's crazy breaking news, and that's what we're doing today. I'm your co-host, Jared Mintz, and joining me on this lovely Wednesday is my partner in rhyme, Joseph Nardone. Joe, how was your Wednesday, man? How was your hump day? Um, interesting. I woke up to find out the news, Phil Jackson was fired. Um, you and I both ran around with our heads cut off all day. And um, I'm sure a lot of people listening right now aren't listening for us, but too bad. You're going to have to listen to this talk for a couple seconds. And, uh, yeah, today was brutal. Um, FanRag Sports published about 37,000 New York Knicks-related articles. And then we did all that, and then Chris Paul got traded to the Rockets seven minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, you know, Joe alluded to it. We have Charlie Rosen coming on the podcast today. Charlie Rosen wrote the Phil Jackson Chronicles for both ESPN and for FanRag Network, where he... Walked around with Phil, spoke with Phil, kind of got the day-to-day breakdowns of, of Phil Jackson's job with the Knicks. So we want to pick his brain on on everything Phil and Knicks today, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But yeah, I mean, I woke up this morning and I had such a hard time getting out of bed today. Like I must have, I must have reset my alarm like four times, and I feel like I did it without even opening up my eyes. It's unlike me to look at my phone and not check Twitter, but I did so like five times before I found out that Phil Jackson was fired. I can't believe that no one called me in the middle of well, the did night. Did I break the me. Phil Jackson news team by DMing you? Uh, no, you didn't. I woke up to a couple of texts that were just holy bleep, and I was like, what happened? What happened? What the hell could have happened? And I immediately jumped to Twitter, and then I saw your DM, and I could I didn't think it was real. Uh, you guys all know I'm a Knicks fan. I live in New York City, born and raised Knicks fan all my life. I must have tweeted like 10 times already this week, what are you doing, Fire Phil, yesterday? What are you doing, Fire Phil? And I guess if you put things into into the earth, into space, or wherever, <laughs> you write them enough times, it happens. I LeVar balled this. I, I just said, I know, we're not even going to talk about LeVar Ball on the show, which is unforgivable, but I guess... Or Kevin you know, Smith. Like, this would be really operating for us. Yeah, we usually talk about Kevin Smith if you're you're new to this program, but... Yeah, I just I could not believe that that this was the day the, the day that the Knicks first get down to Orlando for you know to get ready for summer league. Less than a week after the draft, this is when James Dolan decides to meddle and fire Phil Jackson. But hey, I guess the talk of buying out Carmelo Anthony was enough to to really piss Dolan off, and and here we are getting ready to talk to Charlie freaking Rosen. <laughs> We're really excited today to welcome Charlie Rosen to the show. Charlie's a longtime writer whose work can currently be found at the Fan Rag Network. He's the author of over 20 books, most of them about basketball. His newest book, The Chosen Game, The History of Jews and Basketball, is out October 1st, and we understand it's one of three books coming out in the next 11 months. Charlie was also a head coach in the CBA and served as an assistant coach on Phil Jackson's bench with the Albany Patroons. Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, crazy day, but um, I'm surviving, and so is Phil. <laughs> good to hear. We're glad to hear that. All right, we're going to start our show off like we usually do with guests, and we're going to ask you some rapid-fire questions, so I'm going to lead off. Charlie, why aren't you on Twitter? <laughs> because I'm 76 years old, and um, it's hard enough just to use a computer, <laughs> 
and to use a flip phone. My wife wants me to get one of those other phones where you can get your email and everything. It's just, uh, it's beyond my capabilities. Fair point. What is the last concert you went to, Charlie? Wow. The last real concert. Oh, wow. What could you call it? I mean, it's some... I live in upstate New York, and there's some good bluegrass bands around here that I go to, but that's usually at a club. The last concert, oh, I can't even remember. Probably the Grateful Dead. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. When, I heard. When Jerry, when Jerry was still alive. <laughs> sure, sure. Another question. If you were on death row, not to be morose, but if you were on death row, what would be your last meal? Chinese food, shrimp and lobster sauce. Hot and sour soup, um, two egg rolls, yes, and uh, chicken and eggplant. You had that answer at the ready. You've been thinking about this for a while. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do think about food a lot. I mean, after all, I have to eat three times a day, so it's very relatable. So, uh, Charlie, I'm from the Scranton Wilkesbury area. You played some basketball in Scranton. If any, if any at all, what's your fondest memory of playing Scranton? The Scranton Miners. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how fond it is, but the coach was Elmer Ripley, who uh, was, how old was he, 80 years old or something like that? He was this frail old man. He knew James Naismith. He a great historical background. And we were afraid to get him too excited. We thought he'd just have a heart attack and die. <laughs> So anytime a, a call went against us, and he did, 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 we'd say, no, no, coach, it's okay. It's the right call. It's okay. It's okay. We calmed him down. We had to do that about 15 times a game. Wow, that's hysterical. And he made it through the season? He did. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Funny story. All right, our last, last rapid-fire question before we get into the meat of the show this is bouncing off of the uh, the NBA award show the other night. I don't know if you saw Bill Russell made a comment to some of the centers that were on the stage with him. Charlie, could Bill Russell, in fact, kick Shaquille O'Neal's ass? Yes. <laughs> yes, I didn't, I didn't see the award show. He was so quick. He was, he was only 6'9", six, 6'10", six, but he was had like that tensile strength. He was much stronger than he looked. And you, uh, he was quick enough that he he never went for a fake. He could get to the shot just as it was released from uh, from the shooter's hand. He was smart. He was tough. He had great anticipation. Um, Shaq could have bullied him and bullied him, but um, he would have done really well. Uh, you know, he Chamberlain was more of a scoring machine than Shaq was, and he... He basically held Chamberlain in check. You know, you, a guy like that, you can't shut down. Sure. But he um, he controlled him enough so that the Celtics would win. No, Charlie, I think he was talking about a fist fight. That's what Bill Russell was saying. You think Bill Russell could beat up Shaq in a fist fight? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, no. Know, On the court, know. yes. <laughs> Not a fist fight. No. Shaq could pawn his head, pick him up, and throw him <laughs> against the wall. All right. Well, th- thanks for playing and entertaining us with our goofy questions. Now we're going to get to the reason we had you on the show. Uh, Charlie, oddly enough, we asked you to come on the show on Monday. 
just to talk about free agency. And then today we all wake up in a world where Phil Jackson's no longer the president of the Knicks. Why was today the day that the Knicks and Phil parted ways? I think it was because they opened their practices in Orlando for the Summer League, and he was about to fly down there. So instead of having him fly down there and then fire him down there, uh, they, they, they dropped the axe before he left. I presume that's, that's why. But it's still, it's still a little weird. You know, they let him make the draft picks, and then they fired him. So he picked players that uh, were suitable to his philosophy, which may not be suitable to uh, Hornsex's philosophy. So the, the timing, the timing was uh, was kind of strange. Well, yeah, I mean, in, you, that, in that respect, in that respect, right. And you talk about timing. I mean, they just agreed to, you know, they opted back into the last two years of his contract in April. In February, James Dolan was on the radio talking about, we have to give him all five years. I'm not going to entertain breaking up prior to that. We gave the man a five-year contract. I don't want to hear any questions about whether or not I'm going to fire him. Regardless of it being today, if it was yesterday, if it was tomorrow, ultimately, Charlie, why isn't Phil Jackson the president of the Knicks anymore? Well, because they didn't win. You know, they had a bad record. Uh, They lost, you know, had three bad seasons. And Dolan, I think, was very susceptible to the media reaction. And the media was against Phil, really, from the moment he got here, except there was one stretch, was it last year or this year, where they went like three games in a row, and then Phil was was gold, you know, at that time. The media has always, New York media, has always had a bias against Phil because the confrontations between the Bulls and the Knicks, and because of that uh, infamous uh, meeting that Phil had with Chekets that had nothing to do when Van Gundy was still coach, the year that uh, the Knicks went to the finals in the abbreviated season. And somehow the word got out that Phil was trying to get Van Gundy's job when that was absolutely not the case. Uh, but the New York media believed that, and so Phil was uh, Phil was the bad guy from then from then on, and they were just waiting for something to go wrong. Right. With that said, I mean, is there anything that you think Phil did over the last couple of months that you would have thought was out of line, or do you think he just was doing you know the right job, and ultimately everything he did, the media found a way to twist. I mean. Do you think Phil takes any responsibility, or maybe not takes responsibility, but is responsible for his own doing, even outside of the wins and losses? Because when you rebuild, yeah, sure. it, it takes it takes a few years to rebuild. And, you know, you look at some teams, they could deal with the losing as long as they know there's a bright future ahead. Is there anything that Phil did, you think, that, you know, prevented him from getting that fourth year and the fifth year, ultimately? Well, as Truman said, the buck stops here, you know, meeting at, at the, the president's desk. So, uh, yes, uh, it's Phil's responsibility. The onus is on him. Um, Carmelo had to go. He's nice with the media and all that kind of stuff, but he um, he's a loser. You know, he doesn't know how to play basketball. He didn't want to, to do anything else but catch, hold, and shoot. 
and and save his steps on defense, and he wasn't such a great presence in the locker room. Um, so trying to egg him to accept the move, force him to accept the move, whatever, make life unpleasant for him here. Uh, you know, maybe Phil could have been more subtle about it. Um, you know, just spoken in private to Mello, and that made a public issue. You know, one of the things I've always said about Phil and to Phil is that sometimes he's too honest for his own good. Um, and Porzingis, um, I think Mello got into Porzingis' head. He, uh, you know, he, he skipped that dinner. He skipped something. He skipped that uh, exit meeting. He said some things he shouldn't have said to the coaching staff. He kind of became a prima donna, which, you know, a second-year pro is, uh, is not acceptable. Plus, he's only uh, obligated to play for the Knicks for two more years. So to build your entire future around him uh, is really very, very risky. So why not trade him now when you can get the most that you can for him? And also, I think that Phil's um, broadcasting that that Porzingis was available was to let Porzingis know that, hey, uh, you know, what you have been doing is not acceptable. So we'll see, we'll see how that works out. We'll see if the Knicks do indeed trade Mello. Um, I think the fans will go crazy if, uh, if they do because that's what Phil wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And we'll see if, uh, if Porzingis signs an extension. We'll see what happens. Not- Plus, Porzingis is getting hurt. You know, Phil mentioned when, when they first drafted him that he's worried about big guys, guys that big, uh, having their bodies break, break down. And, and, and the kid has missed 26 games in two years. Plus an Achilles injury. Um, you know, I've spoken to an orthopedic uh, surgeon. He says that's a sign of, of something wrong. It's not just spraining an ankle when you step on somebody's foot. But having an Achilles tendon uh, go like that is, uh, is not a very good sign, especially for someone his size. So there were a, a lot of reasons to at least investigate a dealing for Zingas to see what the return might be. No, Charlie, during that you said... And, not- you know, and, and wait, 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 let me continue. There's a reason for everything Phil did. He didn't do anything just, uh, you know, on a whim. There was a solid basketball reason for every move he made. Not all of them panned out, but they were solid reasons. During that, uh, you said something interesting. I don't know if you could expound on it, but you said that Chris Bob's Porzingis was saying things he probably shouldn't be saying to coaches. Do you know what they were? Yes, and I don't want to, I'm not at liberty to repeat it. Okay. He Fair just enough. disrespected them. You know, it just, uh, it, was, uh, it was not appropriate. Fair enough. And I mean, look, Charlie, you know, obviously we know that Phil is an old school kind of guy. And by that, I'm not, I don't mean to come across as ageist. Obviously, Charlie, you're an old school kind of guy. You guys have been around basketball just for so long. You know, you look at the modern day NBA and you see some of these younger stars just or maybe it's not fair to call Chris Stapps a star yet, but you see some of these younger players, potential franchise guy, have closer relationships with their coaches and their coaching staffs 
we know that that Porzingis was close with uh, John Joshua Longstaff, who who wound up getting fired. I mean, did you feel like there not being communication for those last two months between Phil and Porzingis? Is that something that maybe Phil should have should have tried differently? Do you think that could have been his undoing as well? The fact that they weren't speaking. I mean, the Knicks haven't had a legitimate franchise player since Patrick Ewing, and again, it's too early to say that Porzingis is that guy, but. The fan base, the media, maybe it's just hype. There's belief that Porzingis could be that guy. Why, why wasn't Phil trying to bridge the gap? Well, Phil, to be honest, Phil is not a great communicator in a lot of uh, situations. He's very, uh, he holds things close to his vest. Um, but, you know, not every, not every coach is so popular. You know, there are a lot of... Uh, um, you know, what did Chris Paul say about Doc Rivers? You know, yeah. th- th- that's what forced them out of there. There's a lot of that stuff that goes on that you don't hear about. But everything is public in New York. <laughs> Just, uh, there, are, there are ears uh, everywhere. Could he have related more? I think it all came down to the triangle offense, which has gotten a bad rap. And the triangle offense is nothing but basic basketball, which is something that these young kids coming into the NBA after one year in college know nothing about. Their footwork is terrible. They don't know how to pass. They don't know when to pass. They uh, they don't know when to shoot. They don't know how to use a pick. They don't know how to set a pick. Uh, they don't know when to show and recover on defense. They just don't know basic basketball. And, um, you know, they know how to play one-on-one. They can play pick and roll. They don't know how to play five-man basketball. So uh, the, the triangle is you can do anything with the triangle. You can run. You can shoot three-pointers. You can pick and roll. You can post up. It is entirely flexible. You can do anything with it. But kids don't know how to play it, and they resist learning. They resist, say, hey, you know, I'm making $8 million, $10 million a year doing what I'm doing. Why do I have to learn this? Uh, uh, you know, and everybody says, well, he had Shaq, he had Kobe, he had Michael, he had Pippen, blah, 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 blah. All of those guys were in the NBA for six years, five years, whatever, each of them, without winning anything until Phil came along. And, that, and people forget that one season... When when Michael was playing baseball, and Scottie Pippen was the uh, you know the big player on the team, and Pippen is not a go-to scorer. He never was a go-to scorer. They were in the triangle to perfection, and if it wasn't for that atrocious call by Hugh Holland, uh, the Knicks would have probably gone to the finals. So you don't. You know, his success is not necessarily, is not based on the fact that he had all of these great players and, uh, and that's why he won. You know, Baylor, Chamberlain, and West never won anything. So it's, you know, it's more, it's more than that. Yes, you need talent, but uh, the triangle, you know, what Tex Whitney used to say, a good team that runs the triangle will be the great team that just plays sloppy basketball. And, uh, you know, I, I believe it's true. I mean, how many teams play really solid basketball in the NBA? Uh, Golden State does. They use a lot of triangle uh, precepts. 
and and uh, San Antonio. Just about every other team is I saw this two man pick and roll basketball. Uh, you know, it's, it's the game has dumbed down for for a lot of reasons, and um, and kids they you know they they dumb players, and that's the way they want to play. Well, why do you think that is? Why do you think the game's dumbed down? Because kids don't know how to play. Kids don't know how to play. And, you, you know, you have this kid, and he's, you know, a top draft choice, and he's making millions and millions of dollars. And you've got to use him. You've got to use what he does. There's not much teaching done in the NBA. But first teams in Chicago... And in LA, they spent the first 10, 15 minutes of every practice session doing fundamentals. This kind of spin, that kind of spin, footwork, passing, catch the ball this way, this, you know, fake, uh, go back to it. And that's really not done anymore. So these kids don't learn. And the focus is on numbers, 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 numbers. Triple, double, you know, Westbrook had the ball all the time. Of course, his numbers are going to be uh, high, are going to be crazy. But it's numbers, 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 numbers. That's all that counts. That's, that's the only way that um, athletes, basketball players, are rated, are evaluated. Um, fans want to see three-point shots and dunks. You know, years ago, Jimmy McMillan, who from Columbia, played for the Lakers, he played for the Knicks. This must have been 30 years ago, 40 years ago. He said to me back then, he's a, he's a smart guy. He said, Charlie, this is what's going to happen to the NBA. At some point, it's going to become sheer entertainment. And that is exactly what has happened. It's entertainment. It's not basic basketball. It's, it's a superficial game. Except for a couple of teams who up and they're great teams. Even the, even the Cavs are one-on-one basketball. You know, they don't play team. You know, you drive and if nothing's there, you kick out and the guy shoots a three-point shot. That's, you know, that's limited. It's limited basketball. It's not, uh, it's, uh, it's very unsatisfying to me. But people who grow up watching that, that's all they know. And yes, it's thrilling, and it's easy to understand. It simplifies um, what what is really a complicated game, and to its detriment. You know, plus the NBA has outlawed defense again right. for the sake of uh, you know dunks and all this and all that kind of stuff. So it's not going to get. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Potentially, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was about Carmelo Anthony and the type of player that he is and his lack of being adaptable, you know, how he hasn't adjusted or how he didn't just adjust, wouldn't adjust to Phil Jackson and to the triangle and to moving the ball, moving without the ball. I mean, my, my question, and I'm not, not taking any blame off of Carmelo because I, I live in New York City. I grew up loving the Knicks. I watch the Knicks whenever I can. But, you know, the name of the game is winning here, and we've seen the last two seasons the Knicks go through stretches where they're either at or around 500 or they're above 500. And it's usually because either Derek Fisher or Jeff Hornacek were, were kind of deviating from the system. And that was usually where 
you know, to my understanding, Phil would kind of meddle and get back into practices and say, no, guys, I don't want to win like this. We need to win this other way. I mean, to what to what point can we should we be blaming Phil Jackson then for him not maybe being more adaptable and maybe saying if this is how we're going to win in today's NBA, then this is what we should do. And I mean, I can't understand why he'd hire Jeff Hornacek, who had this reputation for running, you know, pick and roll heavy, three point heavy, faster offense. And then not allow Hornacek to do his thing when the team was succeeding in December. Can you maybe speak well, to that a little bit? He did allow more? him. He did allow him. Hornacek said, yes, he understands the triangle. They played against uh, with Phoenix. They played against um, um, LA, the Bulls, you know, many, many times. His father's a coach, you know, yes, right. yes, yes. But he didn't do it. And the triangle is something. It's not the only way to win. There's no way I'm saying that the triangle is the, is the only way to win. But the triangle, what it does is maximizes your strengths and minimizes your deficiencies. So, um, yeah, they were winning. They were winning. They also, they also were losing. And they lost a lot of games uh, at the very end because they couldn't execute. You know, and that's the thing. If you're running such a limited offense, Everybody knows what you're doing. It's easy for, for defenses to adapt. So when it comes down to, okay, here's a shot that's a win or lose shot, the defenses can make adjustments because they know what's going to happen. You cannot adjust to the triangle. There's no way. If the triangle is run properly, you cannot defend it, period. And it's not just medium-range jump shots. You can take three-pointers. Again, you can never do whatever you want. When when the Bulls, the Bulls or the Lakers, the Lakers, when the Lakers beat uh, the Pacers in the finals in whatever year that was, they won it because they ran pick and roll. Right. Well, then, Char, I got a question. And you can, you can answer this better maybe from your perspective. I hope I have an answer. <laughs> because, you, because you were a coach. Isn't it partly a jobs coach maybe to adapt to the roster instead of the roster adapting to the system, though? Yes and no. It depends on how much control you have. And if you have a system that's won 11 championships and that you know is um, cannot be defended, and if you let these guys go and just do what they want, you know they're not really going to succeed. You, you, you have to have some kind of structure because if something goes wrong and you're just playing uh, ISO basketball and that guy, what do you do? You run more ISOs for this guy or more ISOs for that guy? You know, you, you, can't, you can't really adjust. But when you have a system, you, say, you break it down, ah, here is where we're, we're off and we can rectify it and go back up again. It's, sure. it's organization. You need, you need organization. You know, you can't, you can't just have chaos out there. You, you, you guys, it's teamwork. You know, it's, it's the ultimate teamwork. Definitely, Charlie to, Charlie, to your point, you know, during the, the playoffs, we watched these games, and down the stretch, the Rockets' offense would just crumble, the Wizards' offense would just crumble, and they'd be waiting for their point guards to just make plays because, you know, like you're talking to, it's just too much ISO, ISO, and the defense knows what's happening, and you're guarding the pick and roll, and you're going over the picks to stay with John Wall and James Harden. I, I understand your point. My, my question, following up to what Joe was asking about the coach having to be adaptable, Phil Jackson wasn't the coach of this team. 
ultimately, do, do you think that was kind of also his undoing, that maybe he wanted to coach more than he wanted to build a roster? Did you ever get that impression from him? Well, I think he was, he was frustrated because his health wouldn't let him coach. And that was a problem. But when he was with the Lakers, he's the one who built the roster. He's the one who told Kupchak what to do. He's the one who signed off on, on every move that was made. So this was really nothing new for him. You know, he's the one who evaluated players and said, okay, let's take this guy, let's trade for this guy, let's do this, let's do that. And to a certain extent, not to as much an extent, he did that in Chicago too. But in L.A., he was, he was the decider. So what he was doing uh, in New York was nothing new. Yes, he wasn't coaching, but as far as um, uh, developing a team, building a team, it was nothing new. Something he had done before and succeeded, won five championships doing in L.A. Now, Charlie, knowing New York as well as you do and Phil and the NBA as well as you do, at any part, part of this year, did you see this coming at all, the writing on the wall that this would happen with the party of the ways of Bill Jackson, the Knicks, or is this kind of a stunner cue? I, you know, it was a surprise for me, too. I saw that they had a couple of young players who had good futures. They had draft choices, which they didn't have, you know, a number one draft choice. They had um, uh, money in their salary cap. Um, and I thought it was a good time and had some very good role players. Courtney Lee's a good role player. Lance Thomas, a very good role player. Um, I, I thought that this is the time, okay, did this, you did this, you did this. Now, really go young. You get two more years to really develop uh, young players who are usually not as resistant to uh, learning. As, 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 as veterans, or as we say in the CBA, of veteran players, we should call them hardened criminals. Uh, you know, <laughs> these guys just resist and resist. But I thought that, uh, yeah, that the future looked good, and they had draft choice for next year. Um, you know, I thought, uh, yeah, it was a big surprise to me. We talk about the future and going young, and again, I keep mentioning I'm a Knicks fan. I was dying for them to do that. I wish that Phil would for all these years, and I was hoping this would be the offseason. But I was hearing rumors over the last week that Phil was still impressed with Derrick Rose. Can you explain to me what, what the infatuation is with Rose? I mean, how does he fit into the triangle? What, what does Phil like about Rose as a point guard after we saw this year him not really run an offense as much as you know, look to go ISO, look to attack the basket, not make reads on his penetration. Am I seeing that wrong? Is, is there something about Derrick Rose I'm missing? What, why did Phil like him so much? Well, I think a lot depended on their exit interview, which Phil had said was really very, very productive. And I think, given that Phil was going to continue, um, that Rose wanted to stay in New York, and he. And this is just my supposition, you know, and I'll say this again. I, my columns, when I write my columns, I don't consult Phil. I'm not his parrot. I'm not his mouthpiece. Uh, we see the game a lot in the same way. I was an assistant coach for three years. That was my introduction to professional basketball. This is in the CBA with the Albany Patroons. 
Um, but uh, my ideas are my own. You know, they, they coincide with him. I criticized him when uh, when I felt that I had to. So anyway, I think Derek Rose probably said, okay, if I want to stay in New York, I have to do this and I have to do this. The problems with Derek Rose are bad decisions on defense. I mean, how many games did the Knicks lose when the guy he was supposed to be guarding was, like, wide open for a three-point shot or something? <laughs> yeah. You know, two, three, four of those? Bad decision on defense. Um, he's a great finisher, but uh, it's something he's been doing his entire career. He over-penetrates. And, but he's so great at finding a, uh, finding a space, you know, to get a shot, that he can usually come up with a shot, but when he can't, he's airborne, and there are big guys all around him, and he can't make he can't make the right pass. Uh, so, so that's that's a problem. Um, can and you know, his shooting has evolved. He's he's not a bad mid range shooter. He can hit a three point shot once in a while, but he's, he also has to learn what's a good shot and what's not a good shot. And I think, I guess, that he made a commitment to uh, to change his game, to evolve, to become more of uh, of a real point guard. And the other problem is, when your point guard penetrates, penetrates, and penetrates, everybody else has got to be alert to rotate back on defense to prevent the other team from, uh, you know, having easy fast breaks. And the, uh, the the Knicks players, not enough of them had that awareness. So the Knicks were very susceptible to uh, to, to to giving up easy baskets uh, and fast breaks. Sure, you know Charlie, a lot of what you said kind of speaks to the problem that I did have with the job that Phil was doing. In that, you know, Derrick Rose, if it looks like a dog can quacks like a duck, I don't care if it tells me it's not going to be a duck next year. It's probably still going to be a duck. Derek Rose can say, I'm going to play defense and uh, I'm going to learn how to pass the ball. But you just talked to me for a couple of minutes about what Derek Rose does and doesn't do. And not at any point did you bring up that he's a floor general or that he makes guys around him better. And this is still somebody that Jackson is entertaining or was entertaining bringing back. He gave Joe Kim Noah that contract after we saw him look terrible the last couple of years. And I know that might have been more about philosophy and agreeing with each other and characteristics that, that Noah possessed. But... It's so hard. We were just talking about being young and going super young. How can you do both? How can you say that we want to go super right. young and also then commit to Rose and commit to Noah? I think that that was kind of uh, Jackson's downfall also was that he just he couldn't pick a side to go because when you're in New York, you need to stay competitive. You can't just give up and say, let's play young guys. Right. But at the same time, the, the one tanking season might have been his most productive season. I mean, do you think any of that came came to haunt Phil today or over the last couple months? Well, everything, everything, everything came to haunt him. <laughs> I think his philosophy with Rose was, all right, here's a guy who can score. Take some of the pressure off of uh, Porzingis. You know, just be, being able to do that, carry the offense for, uh, for stretches, maybe run pick and rolls with Porzingis and kick back to him, and, you know, the kid will be open for three-point shots. As far as Noah is concerned, he was injured. He had shoulder problems when he right. came. Noah, yes, he lost a half a step laterally, but he was a great fit for the triangle. He could hold his spot in the low post. His, uh, 
probably the best passing big man in the league. He can take his left hand to the basket for a little looper, and he can hit that two-handed jump shot once in a while. Um, he knows how to play defense. He's got great hands. He's a good rebounder. Um, he knows when to help. He knows when not to help. But he came into camp not in great shape, which is a problem. Then he got sick. And he never really, so he's behind everybody. And he never really um, got his game together. And then he was hurt again. Um, and then he took those over-the-counter drugs, which used to be um, verboten, but in a new uh, contract, and not anymore, you know, which is an actually it was stupid to suspend uh, him. Um, I think, yes, he, uh, he was paid too much for too many years. Right. I agree, that was a mistake. But bringing him in for a couple of years, um, uh, you know, with a lesser salary, I thought that that would have been a good move. The one real mistake he made when he could have had uh, Jake Rubio. Crowder instead of... Uh, in, in, no, I don't, I don't know about Rubio. <laughs> instead of uh, the second pick, Cleon Nancy. I don't know about Rubio. Rubio... Doesn't play any defense. Uh, yeah, he shot the ball well in the second half uh, of the season, but he's not really a good shooter. He gives up so much on defense. He can't finish. He can't finish. Uh, he's a great passer. He's an amazing passer. And especially on the run, nobody's a better passer on the run than he is. But you got to be able to run. So Hornacek wants to run. How can you run with Carmelo, Carmelo Anthony? Right. The guy can't run. You can't run. You know, your best player, your big-time scorer can't run. That's not going to work. Sure, sure. Taking it back to the Knicks, you know, it's it's no secret that they've been considered to have a circus environment for, you know, at least the last two decades or so. Is it as easy as saying that it starts at the top and that the constant mess all really circles back to James Dolan? I, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I'm not there. I'm not involved. I don't know what really goes on. I just uh, read what I read in the newspapers. Um, apparently, he just let Phil do whatever he wanted, um, so he didn't interfere. But there's something about Rambis. He didn't like Rambis for some reason. I think Rambis got a raw deal uh, when he was in Minnesota. He, uh, he couldn't pick his assistants. All of them were 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 stabbing him in the back, undercutting him. They wanted the job. Uh, he tried to run the triangle. His assistant uh, really undermined him. The uh, the owner of the team said, "Well, we're going to lose. We're going to lose." Had a very negative attitude. He was in a lose lose situation, and uh, he, he was always, even when he was with the Lakers, he's always like a little bit cynical. You know, he's one of those guys who, I mean, you have to have a certain amount of talent to be in the NBA, but he was a hustle, bang it out, die for loose balls, uh, you know, do all the little things, don't take any shortcuts kind of players, kind of player. And I think he sees all these guys not working hard, um, taking shortcuts, relying on their talent 
you know, almost exclusively. And uh, I think he became a little cynical, and and it kind of created, and it, it was obvious, and it created uh, some distance between him and the players. So, uh, and it, it's it really the whole Minnesota thing just um, just ruined ruined his possibilities of su- succeeding as a head coach, and even in some instances as uh, as an assistant coach. You just brought up that that Dolan really kind of left Phil alone and gave him that autonomy that everybody understood Phil was going to come in to have. You know what their relationship was like. I mean, do do you think that they'd still be friends after this? Were they even friends? I have no did they, idea. Did they not communicate much? I have no Phil, idea. Phil never spoke about Dolan. No, no. Hey, no news is good news with just, Dolan. I think. Just said no. Just said you know Phil took all the heat, and Dolan uh, played his guitar, <laughs> and you know, and that was fine. I mean, the same thing happened in Chicago where. Uh, Krauss took all the heat, and Reinsdorf, uh, you know, hid, hid in his office or whatever. It was the same kind of thing. Although Reinsdorf was more involved. Now, Charles, I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit here, so I know you're not speaking for Phil. Do you think this is the end of Phil in the NBA? I don't know. I don't know. I could conceivably see him maybe being an advisor someplace, uh, you know, we always talked about George Carl, and I know George Carl. I coached against him in the CBA, and I uh, have a lot of respect for him. He was also one who was disgusted with the NBA, disgusted with the, with the modern uh, player who just uh, wanted to do his own thing and did, did stupid, crazy things. I don't have to mention individuals. I'm sure you can figure it out. But, um, you know, so when he gets fired, you know, Phil and I talked about, you know, Phil knows him also. What's George going to do? I know he wanted to go back to Real Madrid, but his kids were in school in the States, and he didn't want to move them. And, you know, we said he's, he's, a, he's a basketball junkie. He's going to go crazy if he can't get involved in basketball. I think Phil is a little more uh, well-read has more expansive interests. Um, so I think he will survive uh, very, very well, thank you, uh, without the NBA. You know, he's got his homestead in Montana, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, he doesn't mind winters. He grew up in, in heavy-duty winters in, in uh, Montana and uh, Dakota. I think he'll be fine. Do you think... Who knows if he wants to come back? I mean, I don't... No. I don't um, think... He certainly will never coach again. He certainly will never be the president uh, of a team again. Some kind of part-time consultant or maybe a a secret consultant or something like that. I mean, who knows? Do you think there's like a... Maybe a... Not not for any of those roles. Like you said, like a part-time role or as a consultant role. A godfather offer now that Matt's Johnson with the Lakers where maybe he, he won't be there every day. But, like, is there only, like, do you only see, like, if there is a spot for him, there's only, like, a couple destinations where he'd go, or would he be open to going almost anywhere in the NBA? Again, I am asking you to project, no, no, and that's no, no, not no. fair. I, he, if, if, he, if he went someplace, he'd be very selective. He, he's not, he, he wouldn't just go anywhere. 
he'd have to be uh, it, it would have to be the perfect situation for him in, in a lot of respects. I mean, that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. For sure. Charlie, I think that's all we have for you today. You were so amazing, and you gave us so much time on a Wednesday night in which we know you must have been incredibly busy today, and we know you have a crazy couple days ahead of you. Uh, Before we let you go, though, one more time, I just want to plug The Chosen Game, which is the history of Jews in basketball, will be out October 1st. Charlie, you have anything else that you want to talk about that you have coming out or anything else that you want to say before we let you go today? Well, I got another... I got another book uh, coming out in April called Sugar about Michael Ray Richardson and the NBA. I've got another book coming out uh, in 11 months called The 300 Hitter, which is about baseball uh, in the early 20th century. And I'm working on another book. Um, So, um, I mean, I'm busy, but I still love NBA games. I love to analyze NBA games. even though it's diminished, I think it's, uh, it's, it pits the greatest athletes in the world against each other. Um, and there's always something interesting in every single game. And I'm happy that Golden State won because they play it, they play it the right way. For sure. We, we agree. We're huge basketball nuts over here, too. Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Everybody, make sure you're reading Charlie's work on the FanRag Sports Network. You guys can follow me on Twitter at Hoops and catch my basketball writing at the FanRag Sports Network. Joe, tell the good people where they could find you. And Twitter at Joseph Nardone, N-E-R-D-O-N-E, also at FanRagSports.com. All around me are familiar websites, worn out clickbait, worn out Hotcakes, bright and early for the daily link dumps. No one's clicking, no one's clicking. Their pupils are filling up their pockets, but not for writers, not for writers. Hide my head, I want to do a slideshow. No tomorrow, no tomorrow, and I find it kind of funny, I find it kind of sad. The internet in which I'm worthless is the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you, I find it too hot to take. When people blog in circles, it's a very, very mad world.